Well, good day. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jay Anderson, one of the elders here at Bethesda, and I also work with a campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the UW-Eau Claire campus. Been doing that for 35 years. I'd be happy to tell you more about InterVarsity after the service if you'd like. We're ramping up for activities this week, all the freshmen coming back to campus on Wednesday and Thursday, and so we're kind of gearing up for that. If you know me, or maybe even if you don't, you probably know that I customarily use the greeting, good day. Uh, it's actually become kind of a trademark for me, uh, so much so that uh, Susan Jacoby, who some of you know, actually bought me a doormat that says good day on it. I think we've got a picture of this. Uh, those of you who know Susan Jacoby um, know that you, you'll hear her voice, because uh, when she saw it, she said, the moment I saw this, I knew I simply could not bear to live in a world that Jay Anderson did not have this on his doorstep. <laughs> More recently, uh, an university alum from about 15 years ago gave me this t-shirt. I don't know if you can see that. It says, it's a good day for a good day. Um, I, 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 I've become kind of famous uh, for my little tag saying good day. Uh, but a lot of people, uh, upon hearing it, assume that my uh, tagline is from the 80s movie Crocodile Dundee, starring Paul Hogan. But not so. Um, if I was imitating uh, Paul Hogan, I would say, good day, mate, not good day, or good day A. Uh, because my tagline actually comes from a different 1980s movie, Strange Brew, starring uh, fictional brothers Bob and Doug McKenzie. Now, I'm not sure I can recommend the film without a few caveats, uh, since most of the humor is centered around barf jokes or potty jokes or excessive drinking of alcoholic beverages, especially beer. Uh, but for those of you who are literature lovers, you might be interested to know that I think it's actually an elaborate parody of Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Um, it's got more than a dozen clear references to Hamlet in, in the movie, uh, including the name of the castle, several of the lead characters, and the plot prominently features a man who kills his brother, uh, kills his brother's, yeah, kills his brother, take his brother's wife, and to take over the kingdom, in this case, a brewery. So I'll leave it up to you if you do watch it to determine whether it's just a B-level film full of potty jokes and crude middle school humor, or, this is my opinion, a brilliant film adaptation of Shakespeare's masterpiece play. Either way, I did love the movie when I was a high school student, uh, and I have to confess to you all this morning, if you haven't already guessed, it still makes me laugh. Uh, my brothers and I back in high school were so enamored of the movie that we started talking like the two heroes of the film, Bob and Doug McKenzie. They're, they're from Canada, and so they say A at the end of every sentence, as in, do you want another jelly donut, A? Eh? Or, oh, I really like this back bacon, eh? Uh, and by now you probably guessed that their customary greeting is good day. Or, uh, actually, good day, eh? So, when I went off to college, I decided to adopt that tagline for saying hello to people, and it kind of stuck. So here I am, almost 40 years later, still using it as a greeting. Now, along the way, I have persuaded several other people to adopt it as well. Uh, Neil Dittner from the first service uh, uses it to greet everybody. If you know Neil, you've heard him say good day. Uh, Ross Koiker, who some of you know, uses it in his business communications. You might even hear Pastor Brian say it from time to time, or at least to me. Uh, I don't know if he uses it with anybody else, but at least he says it to me. And in addition to the tagline, good day, 
the movie also has a number of other memorable quotes that my brothers and I have found very useful in our banter with one another. Lots of quotes, such as, you drive, eh? There's cops around. Or, I'd kiss you if I didn't have puke breath. <laughs> or, hey, who horked my clothes? Or, I think I'm getting whiplash from my belches, eh? That one's particularly useful around the dinner table. Or my favorite line as they're barreling down a steep hill after uh, the villain in the film has cut the brake lines in their van, Doug folds his arms and says, well, I guess there's no use steering now, eh? <laughs> so, to this day we quote uh, those lines regularly in conversation. We practically know the whole movie by heart. Uh, any, any scene from the movie, any line from the movie, we quote it and you know, we can finish each other's quotes. But here's the thing, any time we use one of the lines from the movie, we're immediately transported back in time and space, back to high school, when we were there on opening night for Strange Brew, on the big screen at the Cineplex there, at the Burnsville Center in Burnsville, Minnesota. A mere mention of one line from the movie, or even a variation of a line from the movie, is enough to remind us of the content of the whole movie in its entirety. Now why am I telling you all this? If I were sitting in your shoes, I would be wondering the same question. Why in the world is he telling us all this? Well, my answer is this. I hope it helps you to remember the two main points that I hope to make about the psalm that I'm speaking on this morning, Psalm 22. Now you might be asking, well, Jay, what possible connection could there be between a bad movie from the 80s uh, and God's holy word? Well, I'm hoping by the end of my message you'll at least uh, remember these two things. First... I hope to make the case that merely quoting one line, either of a movie or of the psalm, actually evokes the whole. So just as my brothers and I are brought back to opening night, anytime we use one of the lines of the movie, I hope to make the case that for a Jew of Jesus' day and for his disciples, that merely quoting the first line of Psalm 22 actually would have reminded them of the whole psalm in its entirety and all of its major themes. In fact, they're probably so familiar with the psalm, they might have been able to recite the whole thing word for word. Second, just as my brothers and I have adopted quotes from the movie and adapted them for use in our present day circumstances, I hope to make the case that you and I can actually use this psalm, Psalm 22, in our own prayers, that you and I can adopt David's prayer for our own use in our own personal prayer lives. So, speaking of prayer, let's pray before we jump into the text. God, I thank you that you have caused your word to be written, that you uh, inspired David to write these words, preserve them down through the ages so that we can study them this morning. Pray that you'd speak through your word. Pray that you'd speak through me by your spirit. Pray that you'd give everyone here today something that they can hang on to and take home with them at the end of the service this morning. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read for you Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me 
They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare at and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now hopefully, as I was reading the text to you, I captured some of the hopelessness and despair that David was experiencing. Now, it's not quite clear what the historical context is for this psalm when, when David wrote it. It could have been that it was written when he was on the run from King Saul. You may remember that back in 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul is trying to kill David despite the fact that David had defeated Goliath and the Philistines and despite the fact that David was one of his best warriors and best field generals. Or it could have been written much later when David had become king but his own son Absalom had rebelled against him, and David had to flee Jerusalem, flee his capital, and flee his palace to save his life. Or it could be uh, another time that David felt abandoned by God. So while it's not quite clear what the historical context is, it is quite clear how David is feeling. He's feeling abandoned and forsaken. We see that in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. So he's feeling abandoned and forsaken by God. And he's surrounded by all these enemies. Enemies who mock him and hurl insults at him, as we see in verses 7 and 8. And it seems, at first glance, that he's surrounded by a bunch of animals, right? We see bulls in verse 12, lions in verse 13, and dogs in verse 16. I personally don't think that it was the case that he was literally surrounded by these animals uh, at, at the time he wrote the psalm. I think he's using figurative language to speak poetically about his, uh, his enemies, describing them as animals. Uh, he's picturing his enemies as lions and dogs and bulls. But if we're not careful, we may actually miss his point because the images that we conjure up in our minds might be a little bit different or maybe quite different than what he had in mind. So the lions we would get right. Lions always have been fearsome, they always will be fearsome. So lions we would get right. But when we think of dogs, we might think of cute little puppies. Or, or maybe your lap dog back home, right? That's so cute and adorable, gentle and loving and kind. But David almost certainly does not have that kind of dog in mind. He's referring instead to rabid, stray, mongrel dogs roaming the streets. My son owns a pit bull, so he's going to think this is discriminatory, but think rabid pit bull instead, right? Running wild in the streets. Likewise with bulls, uh, don't think of the relatively harmless dairy cows that we have in Wisconsin, 
but rather wild bulls. Uh, maybe more like a water buffalo, right? They're just going to kill you just for looking at them wrong, all right? So David is surrounded by these fierce enemies that he pictures as these uh, animals. But far worse is that he feels like he's been abandoned by his God. He's praying, but it seems like God doesn't answer. But then there's a big but in verse 19. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Someday I'm going to write a book called The Biggest Butts in the Bible. Um, I'm still looking for a publisher. Um, not sure that this butt is in the top 10, but if my book has 25 or 30 chapters, this butt might make the cow. Uh, might, might, this butt might make the cut. So let me read for you uh, the rest of the psalm, starting with the big butt in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. My strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Then I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So did you see how the whole tenor of the psalm turns on that one word, but, uh, on that one verse, verse 19? Up until that point, the whole psalm seems to be about how miserable David is in his situation, how, how dismal his uh, circumstances seem to be. He's, he's saying, woe is me, woe is me. But from that point forward, the focus seems to be on the future. Did you notice the shift in verb tenses from past tense and present tense to future tense? So in verses 1 through 18, it's past tense and, and present tense. And starting in verse 19, going through 31, it's future tense. Did you notice how often that the word will is repeated in the second half of the psalm? Eleven times in the last eleven verses, David says, this will happen, or this will happen, or I will do this. Now the introduction to the psalm, you may have seen in your Bible, tells us originally that this psalm, the words of this psalm, were put to music, uh, to a song or tune called, To the Doe of the Morning. Now that song has been lost to us, that melody is lost to us, but I have a feeling that at verse 19, it shifts, shifts from maybe a depressing minor key to a more positive and upbeat major key. The song turns and, and probably becomes, became triumphant and hopeful and celebratory. But here's the thing. Nothing in David's situation has actually changed. The only thing that has changed is his outlook, his perspective on the situation. 
So David, in the middle of this difficult situation, whatever it was, in the middle of his feelings of abandonment by God, chooses to trust God. Chooses to trust him to be faithful to his covenant promises. So now, instead of singing, woe is me, woe is me, David begins singing, but great are you. Great are you, O Lord. Did you notice that as well? That uh, at the beginning of the psalm, uh, David uses kind of the generic term for God. God, the Hebrew behind it is, is Elohim. He uses that in verse 1, again in verse 2, and in verse 10, just, just God. But then in verse 19, he starts using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Um, and the NIV denotes that by putting the Lord in all caps. So you see the Lord used in verse 19, verse 26, verse 27, verse 28, and verse 30. Now, as a bit of a side, before I get to application a little bit later, I think there could be a lesson here for us in our own prayer lives. That when we don't know what to pray, don't know how to pray, we know that we can always lay claim to the covenant promises of God. We can recite what we know to be true about God, even if that doesn't measure or match up to our current circumstances. But that's not the most amazing part of this psalm for me. The most amazing, amazing part for me is the wonder and mystery of the inspiration of Scripture and how that works. It's mind-boggling to me to ponder how the Holy Spirit guided David to write this psalm fully 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, and yet David seems to be writing about some details of the crucifixion as if he's standing at the foot of the cross, describing the scene as an eyewitness. Maybe you noticed the same thing as I was reading it for you. For instance, even though he's writing about his own experience of being abandoned, somehow, inspired by the Spirit, he predicts exactly how the people in the crowd at the crucifixion are going to mock Jesus and hurl insults at him. You see that in verse 7. You can read about that uh, in Mark's account of the crucifixion in Mark 15, verses 29 through 31. In fact, David specifically predicts the very insult that's used in verse 8 here, he trusted the Lord, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Matthew records that the people in the crowd at the crucifixion actually said those exact words verbatim. You can read that in Matthew's account of the crucifixion in Matthew 27, verse 43. In David's poetic description of his own mis mi misery, we also see other familiar details of the crucifixion. Uh, just as David is experiencing thirst in the desert wilderness while well, he's on the run here, Jesus also experienced thirst on the cross, which John highlights for us in John 19.28. And somehow, hundreds of years before the Roman torture device of crucifixion was ever even invented or conceived of, David poetically speaks of his hands and feet being pierced, as we saw in verse 16. So somehow... In the mystery of divine inspiration, David is writing about the agony of his own experience, yet he's also prophesying about the way that Jesus, the son of David, was going to die. And perhaps the most striking example, David predicts that the soldiers would actually gamble for Jesus' items of clothing at the crucifixion, verse 18. And that's recounted for us in three of the gospel accounts, in John 19, 23, in Luke 23, 34, and Matthew 27, 35. So somehow, the Holy Spirit moved David to write this prayer, lamenting his own personal sense of abandonment by God, to also predict in vivid detail how the Messiah was going to die a thousand years later. 
So I don't think that's a, it's an accident that Jesus quotes the first line of this psalm while he is on the cross. Jesus himself probably knew this psalm by heart, and I think he's using it on the cross as his own prayer, reminding himself that even though it seems like God has abandoned him, that ultimately that's not actually true. I also think that he was using it to tell his disciples what's actually going on before their very eyes. So just as my brothers and I can quote a few movie lines to invoke the whole of an old movie, I think Jesus intentionally quoted the first line of this psalm to remind his disciples of what was actually going on. He's saying, in effect, I think, again, this is a bit of speculation, I think he's saying, yes, yes, I am indeed the son of David, the Messiah. Remember how I told you that the Messiah had to suffer and die? Now you're seeing it right before your very eyes, just as the scriptures foretold it, even though you didn't realize it until just now. That ancient psalm, this, this psalm that you've been singing about since your childhood, you grew up singing it in synagogue, it's actually pointing to this very moment in time. So yes, the situation is grim. And yes, I am going to die. And right now, or pretty soon, I'm going to be experiencing painful separation from my father as I take the sins of the whole world upon myself. But, take heart. Because ultimately, I'm not forsaken. Ultimately, I will have the victory. Ultimately, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust, Jesus is saying, will kneel before me. Posterity will serve me. Future generations will be told about me. They'll proclaim my righteousness to a people yet unborn, for I have done it. It is finished. I think that if Jesus on the cross had the strength and breath to burst into song, I think he would have. I think he would have sang this whole psalm at the top of his lungs. But instead, in his agony, all he can manage is the first line of the psalm. And then later in his dying breath, he says, it's finished. I've done it. So that's the first point I hope to make this morning, that Jesus, by quoting the first line of Psalm 22, was actually reminding his disciples of the whole psalm, and particularly the, the triumphant ending of the psalm. The second point that I hope to make this morning is that you and I can use this psalm in our prayers. You and I can adopt David's prayer and Jesus' prayer on the cross for our own use in our own personal prayer lives. So, as we've talked about, at face value, this is a psalm that King David wrote about his own experience of feeling abandoned by God. So it's David's personal prayer born out of deep personal turmoil when he was going through a very difficult time in his life. It was undoubtedly deeply meaningful for him as he wrote it. Later, it was included in the book of Psalms, the, the hymn book of ancient Israel, if you will. And I imagine that it was perhaps a favorite, familiar to many of the Jews. Maybe much like Great is Thy Faithfulness, or one of the other great hymns of the faith is for many of us. I'm guessing maybe this psalm was particularly meaningful for them when they were enduring the exile in Babylon, or suffering under the oppression of the Roman Empire. But as we've just seen, this, this psalm was also used by Jesus on the cross, and so David's prayer 
is somehow also Jesus' prayer too. I think, as I've already talked about, that he was meditating on it and perhaps even reciting it to himself on the cross. So, to the extent that we can relate to or resonate with their experiences of feeling abandoned by God, I think it can become our prayer as well. 2,000 years after Jesus prayed it on the cross and over 3,000 years after David first wrote it. So, are there circumstances in your life where you feel like God has abandoned you? That, that he's not answering your prayers? Maybe a marriage or, or another close relationship has been fractured. Maybe a close friend has betrayed you or maybe just let you down. Maybe you feel like you're surrounded by enemies and opponents on all sides. Wherever you turn, you're mocked and insulted. You, you feel left all alone. Maybe you've had a significant career setback. What once seemed like a promising opportunity now has gone up in flames. Or maybe you've recently lost a loved one to death or are facing your own mortality. If so, you can pray this prayer, David's prayer, Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus actually knows what it's like to feel like you've been abandoned by God. Jesus knows what it's like to see a close relationship fractured. He, for a time, was separated from his heavenly Father by our sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend or to have friends who let you down or disappoint you. Judas betrayed him and all the rest of the disciples denied him or fled and went into hiding, leaving him all alone. Jesus knows what it's like to be surrounded by enemies, to be mocked and insulted. Jesus knows what it's like to have a promising career end abruptly. His ministry of preaching and healing and teaching was cut short while he was still in the prime of his life. And Jesus knows the pain of seeing loved ones die. He knows what it's like to face death himself. So Jesus knows. So you can pray this psalm just as he did in the midst of your suffering, whatever it is. Let me pray for you as well. Jesus, we thank you, first of all and foremost, that you did endure the cross for our sake, that you took upon yourself our sins and, and took them away from us, paid the penalty for our sins, and restored our relationship with your heavenly but we thank you, too, that you have suffered just like we suffer. You know the trials that we endure. We, you know the trials that we experience and face. And um, you teach us, you model for us what it is to trust God in the midst of those circumstances. So I pray for everyone here today, whatever struggles they're going through right now, whatever struggles they might go through in the future, that you would be near to them in those times, that they'll be able to turn to you and trust in your faithfulness and your covenant promises. For that, in Jesus' name, amen.